Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 112 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Women Destroy Science Fiction, a special crowdfunded double issue of Lightspeed Magazine written and edited entirely by women. But first up, we've got an interview with best-selling author Diana Gabaldone. Her Outlander series has been called The Smartest Set of Science Fiction Adventure Romances Ever Written by a Science PhD with a Background in Scripting Scrooge McDuck Comic Books. The series is currently being adapted for TV by Battlestar Galactica's Ron Moore, and will premiere on Stars on August 9th. And now, here's our interview with Diana Gabaldone. All right, so we're here with Diana Gabaldone. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, David. How are you? Good, good. Okay, so I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are big Doctor Who fans, and so they might be <laughs> interested to hear that your Outlander series was actually inspired by Doctor Who. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was uh, intending to write a novel for practice and had decided that for me the easiest kind would probably be historical fiction. I was a scientist in my previous incarnation, but I was a university professor and I knew my way around the library because it seems easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record. So the next question was, well, where am I going to set this? Because I have no background in history to speak of. So I was looking for a convenient time and place. And in this malleable frame of mind, I happened to see a really old Doctor Who rerun. And it was one of the old Patrick Troughton episodes. Luckily, I don't have to stop and explain to your <laughs> listeners who Doctor Who is. But uh, in this one, the doctor had picked up a young Scotsman from 1745, a lad named Jamie McCrimmon, who uh, was 18, 19, appeared in his kilt. And I said, well, that's kind of fetching. <laughs> and I found myself still thinking about this the next day in, in church. And it occurred to me, uh, you know, you want to write a book. The important thing is to just pick a point and get started. So I said, fine, why not? Scotland, 18th century. So that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland the 18th century, having no plot, no outline, and no uh, characters, nothing but the rather vague images conjured up by the notion of a man in a kilt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, is writing science fiction something that you had wanted to do for a long time? Oh, uh, I wouldn't say uh, writing science fiction particularly. I, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy and everything else. <laughs> I just wanted to learn how to write a novel. Uh, I wrote Outlander for practice uh, in order to learn how to write a novel because to that point I had uh, I'd been a professional writer as well as a, as a university professor for some years. So that uh, it was all, all nonfiction. I sort of slid sideways and become a, uh, quote, expert in scientific computation. So I wrote uh, extensively for the computer press and, you know, anything else anyone would pay me for, basically, including coming books uh, for Walt Disney. But, uh, you know, the genre just wasn't uh, anything I thought about at that particular point. Uh -huh. Well, yeah, but I mean, it does have this prominent uh, time travel science fiction aspect to oh, it. It does, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, that had actually nothing to do with Doctor Who, though. <laughs> it was that uh, about the third day of writing, and I'd been doing a bit of research and decided to use the Jacobite uh, Rising as my backdrop. And I said, well, I must have a lot of Scotsmen, of course, because of the kilt factor, but I think it would be good if I had a female character to play off these guys. I don't have sexual tension. That's conflict. That's good. And so I said, well, it looks like Scots versus English, so if I make her an English woman, we'll have lots of conflict. So about the third day of writing, I introduced this English woman. No idea who she was, what she was doing there, how she got in the plot. But I loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen to see what she'd do. And they were all muttering around the fire, turned around and stared at her. And thinking, why, does she look odd? But one of them stood up slowly and he said, my name's Dougal Mackenzie and uh, who might you be? And without my stopping to think, I just typed, my name's Claire Elizabeth Beecham and who the hell are you? 
And I said, well, you don't sound at all like an 18th century person. So I fought with her for several pages, trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like an 18th century person. Uh, she wasn't having any. She just kept making smart-ass modern remarks. And she also took over and started telling the story herself. So I said, well, I'm not going to fight with you all the way through this book. I said, no one's ever going to see it. It doesn't matter what bizarre thing I do. Go ahead and be modern. I'll figure out how you got there later. So it's all her fault that there's time travel. Hmm. And so how did you go about developing the rules for time travel? I saw that you actually published an article in the Journal of Transfigural Mathematics. I did, yeah, yeah, the gabbled on theory of time travel. Well, uh, you know, I, I thought about it. You know, as a as a teenager into my early twenties, I had, of course, read uh, quite a lot of of science fiction and you know some classic time travel novels and so forth. And I noticed, you know, that anyone who writes about time travel kind of rolls their own. You have to you know, figure out how it's going to work for your particular setting. Uh, you know, the basic question, of course, is uh, can the past be changed, or rather, can the future be changed by different actions being taken in the past? And if that's the case. You know exactly how does it work? Can it always be changed only under certain circumstances, etc.? And so, you know, I, I basically I just sat down and thought about it and, until I had figured out uh, what seemed to me a good working model. Evidently, the Journal of Transfigural Mathematics agreed. Uh, I mean, so what is Transfigural Mathematics, and why was time travel relevant for that magazine? Oh, well, they came to me rather than me going to them. So uh, you would probably have to ask them exactly what's covered <laughs> under transfigural. I gather it to be something of a of an umbrella term for mathematics that borders on, you know, metaphysics and uh, problematical or hypothetical situations. Oh, uh, okay. Um, okay, but did, I mean, did you know a lot of science fiction authors? I actually saw that, um, you know, one of my favorite books growing up was a book called Redshift Rendezvous by John oh, Stith. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I've read that one, certainly. John, uh, well, he was a friend of mine on CompuServe. I haven't, uh, he left CompuServe, and I haven't uh, spoken to him in some years. I did run into him briefly uh, about 10 years ago, I think, at the Rocky Mountain uh, Writers Festival, where he was in the audience and introduced himself to me. Uh, but he introduced you to your agent, right? He did, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I knew him on CompuServe, as I say, and uh, I was sort of just asking people randomly about their agents, anyone who I knew as a professional writer, because uh, I was just doing research and you know zeroing in on on a man who I thought might uh, might suit me. His name was Perry Knowlton, and uh, he was a very reputable agent. Uh, the people whose whose agent he was, I knew a few of them on CompuServe. They all thought he walked on water. And uh, besides being you know like an A list agent, which I wanted, he uh, was not afraid of unorthodox books or of unusual book or of very long books, both of which it had struck me I had. So he seemed like a good match, but I didn't know how to get at him. So anyway, one day I was just in conversation with John. This was a bulletin board service, not a chat room, but so back and forth. But uh, I said, well, I'm asking everyone about agents. John, do you have one? And he said, well, yeah, I do. By coincidence, it's the same as so-and-so. It's uh, His name is Perry Knowlton. He said, uh, I know you're almost ready to look for an agent. Would you like me to introduce you to Perry? Which I said, well, yes, John, that would be very nice. Now, I was afraid that John would leave CompuServe or be run over by a bus before I finished writing the book. So I said, yes, please. So he uh, hastily wrote a uh, a nice note of introduction uh, to Perry. Now, Perry, God rest his soul, was a much older man who never touched a computer in his life. So at this point, the story kind of leaves the online world and everything else was conducted, you know, just as, as anyone off the street would do it. But to John sent Perry a regular typewritten note uh, saying, I know this woman. People think she's hilarious and she might be worth looking at. And I followed that with my own query and said, Dermot. Mr. Knowlton, I've been writing and selling nonfiction by myself for several years. Now that I'm writing a novel, though, I understand I need good literary representation. You've been recommended to me by John and Judy and Carolyn Cherry and all these people whose opinions I respect. I said, I have this very long historical novel. I don't want to waste your time. Would you be willing to read excerpts from it? 
Well, he uh, kindly called back and said, yes, he'd be happy to read my excerpts. So I hastily wrote a 26-page single-spaced synopsis <laughs> and sent it with my bundle of excerpts. I didn't tell him I wasn't through writing the book. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he uh, took me on on the basis of an unfinished first novel, uh, which is not usual now, and it wasn't usual then, but very lucky for me. Uh, uh, and at that time, did you have any other involvement in the science fiction world? Were you attending conventions, or did you know any other authors or anything like that? Uh, well, I knew several uh, authors. Uh, again, on CompuServe, uh, at that point, there was the Sci-Fi Forum uh, and uh, also Sci-Fi Media. I hung around in the Sci-Fi Lit uh, division for, for some time back in those days, as well as the Literary Forum. And I knew a, a number of people, Mike Resnick and uh, a few others. But um, I, I was a university professor with another full-time job and three small children. So no, I didn't really go to cons at that point. Uh, after the book was published, I, I went to some of the local ones. You know, I was invited as a local author. And uh, in my latter years, I, I yeah, certainly attend them with a great deal more frequency. I'll be at San Diego Comic-Con uh, next month, for instance. Oh, all right, great. Okay, and so the, the new book is called Written in My Own Heart's Blood. Mm -hmm. And the other big news is that there's going to be an Outlander TV show coming out. Um, why don't you just yeah. tell us a bit, little bit about how that came about and what sort of involvement you had with, you've had with it? Oh, well, uh, it's a long story most, for the most part, a very boring one, so I'll skip the boring part. Uh, the books uh, have been optioned several times over the last 20 years. You want to be careful who you do an option with because there's always the chance that they will, in fact, put a deal together. And at that point, once they bought the rights, you're, you, they, you've lost them forever. So you want to make sure that you can trust the people you're dealing with insofar as it is possible to use the word trust in the same sentence with the word filmmaker. <laughs> and uh, so we had done four options, I believe. The last guy to hold the option, Jim Kohlberg, uh, also wanted to make a two-hour movie of it. And to this end, he hired several you know, very respectable screenwriters whose names you would recognize if I were indiscreet enough to speak them aloud, uh, but you know, all, all to no avail, uh, because, as I could have told him, <laughs> uh, it's impossible to make a two-hour movie out of that book uh, and have it resemble the original in any way, shape, or form. It's just too large, too complex, and too uh, too tightly constructed. You take out one chunk, and you know, the rest of it just doesn't make sense. So anyway... Uh, Jim was a very faithful optioner. He renewed his option, I think, three times and kept trying, bless him. Uh, meanwhile, Ron Moore, whose name you will know from Battlestar Galactica, of course, had become aware of the books because both his wife and his production partner were huge fans and had uh, drawn his attention to them. He read the book uh, over one night, uh, said, yeah, I think this is great. You know, Let me see what we can do with it. So he went to find who had the option, found Jim. Jim said, no, I'm trying to make a movie out of it. And this went on with Ron coming back at intervals just to check. And finally, uh, Jim said, well, I'm beginning to think you're right. It might be a TV series. So at this point ensued 18 months of just insane negotiations. And this is why I'm glad I have an agent. Mm -hmm. uh, though it's no longer pair, I got rest him. But um, anyway, this resulted in like a, this unwieldy five-corner arrangement between Sony, who actually holds the uh, the, the rights, Stars, which is the production company actually making the show, and they therefore have the uh, the U.S. Uh, distribution rights, and uh, Sony keeps the international rights, which are in the process of being sold to various other countries. Uh, so between Sony, Stars, Ron, Jim, and me, so it's had to be signed by everybody, and all these things agreed to, and we finally got it done about a year ago at the end of May, and uh, they started casting immediately. They started filming uh, first of week of October in Scotland, by which time they had taken over a disused. Uh, circuit board factory remade it as outlander world and just set up this absolutely fabulous production apparatus uh -huh. yeah i don't know how much time you have to watch tv but when uh you heard that ron moore was 
uh, associated with the project. Had you were you familiar with Battlestar Galactica and his, oh, his yeah. other TV work? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, I was struck by his uh, his sense of character, you know, and how he develops character, and this, that the stories are all focused very tightly around character, which, if you ask me, is the uh, the sole ingredient for a good story. Without that, you know, it's it's just uh, yeah, it's not uh, not worth reading or watching for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and I heard you say that you're friends with George R. R. Martin, and you guys have kind of yeah. been comparing notes on what it's like having your books turned into a TV series. Yeah, yeah, to a limited degree. Uh, he lives in Santa Fe, and my husband and I live in Santa Fe part-time. So when we're both in town together, we go out for breakfast and, yeah, just chat. You know, we're just uh, you know, friends. Uh -huh. I mean, could you say what kind of conversations you've had? I heard you say that uh, he was... Uh, you, you you told him that your series is going to have 16 episodes a season. He's like, hey, my series only gets 10 episodes a season. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> On the other hand, he has a terrific budget for every one of those episodes. Yeah, yeah so they can do you know, these fabulous location shots and so forth. Now, mind you, we have quite a quite a generous budget for ours as well. But it is all shot in Scotland, so there's not nearly as much expensive location work to be done. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, what do you think of... Do you, do you think that Game of Thrones... It seems to be that Game of Thrones really... Um, the success of it has enabled a lot, a lot of these other similar, you know, fantasy-oriented shows to. to oh, you bet it has. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was told so by any number of uh, of production people and agents and so forth, saying, "Oh, you know, Stars is really looking for uh, for you know a series that they can adapt and so forth." So yeah, no talk like that was around for quite some time before uh, this deal came together. Mm -hmm. Uh, what if you thought have you uh, have you you've been watching Game of Thrones? I, I assume or no, I have not. I have been uh, you know for the past six months just you know neck deep in uh, finishing the the final book, as well as you know doing a certain amount of work. Uh, you know, I wouldn't really call it work, but uh, you know just looking at the stuff that the production people send me requires a certain amount of time and attention. So no, I actually haven't watched television at all for about the last eight months. Yeah. <laughs> I've been save I've been kind of saving Game of Thrones as a treat for when I finished. Uh -huh. Uh, I don't know. Well, so so yeah. Then I don't know if you followed any of the controversies around some of the ways that Game of Thrones was adapted in terms of the sexual violence and things like that. Um, I catch the catch the breezes because you know I hang on Twitter and all that, so I don't take part in in the conversation. But I, I see bits of it, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. But I mean, like there are a lot of aspects of Outlander that are potentially controversial. Do you have any idea how those <laughs> will be adapted for television? Well, what Duran says is, uh, if it's in the book, we'll film it the way it is in the book. <laughs> I couldn't ask better than that. <laughs> uh -huh. um, I mean, so for example, in the books, there's a scene where uh, Jamie beats Claire, right, in the first Outlander book. Well, he um, doesn't actually beat her. You know, he's not you know, punching her in the mouth and throwing her against the wall. You know, uh, he, he spanks her with his sword belt because you know, she did something incredibly dangerous and, you know, nearly got them all killed. And, you know, this is basically what the Highland justice was like. If you screwed up, you know, you got punished for it. And then you were kind of back in the good graces of the clan. And so that's, that's what he's doing. You know, it's his, his duty as her husband, basically, to you know, correct her, set her on the right path. And mind you, she doesn't like it because she's a 20th century woman. <laughs> she's very upfront. But you know he's not hurting her. <laughs> uh huh. But you think that'll be um um that'll be portrayed in the TV show the same way it was in the book? Oh, I know it well. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what sort of um, reaction do you think that that'll um, get from from uh, viewers? 
uh, there will undoubtedly be a certain amount of you know knee-jerk feminism from you know very young women. Uh, anybody over the age of 35 would uh, appreciate both the uh, the cultural conflict in that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes, in fact, because each person in it is completely right according to his or her own view of the situation, and yet you know you have this untenable situation. They aren't both going to get their way, and then push comes to shove, he outweighs her by 80 pounds. Yeah, but anyway, most people, uh, as I say, above a certain age would appreciate it for the inherent ironies and also for the uh, considerable humor in the in the situation. I mean, just in terms of feminism generally, what sort of um, relationship would you say you have with feminism? Would you describe yourself as a feminist or do you think, or I don't know, just what do you think about that? No, I wouldn't describe myself as that, but I, I try to avoid describing myself by any sort of label, so to speak. I mean, I'm a Roman Catholic uh, libertarian, but that's as far as I'd go in description. Um, no, I mean, I can't help but be a de facto feminist merely by uh, virtue of when I was born and what I do for a living. Um, but uh, that does not mean that I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not agenda-driven, let's say. Uh-huh. I sort of think that agendas are detrimental to art. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, for, our, for the second half of the show, we were going to talk about this Women Destroy Science Fiction Anthology Project. I don't know if you've heard about that. but um, Oh, my son's mentioned something like that. Yeah, he writes fantasy, so he pays a lot more attention to, <laughs> <laughs> to what you might say, the political combat side of it. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, as, as a woman in science, do you have any just um, perspective on being a woman in science or a woman writing science fiction, just what that, have you had any particular experiences with that? Um, not to speak of, not that uh, not that it would strike me as being different than writing anything else. It's all a question of, do you tell a good story? Is it something that people would like to read? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And so you mentioned that you have a cameo in the TV show. Uh, can you say a bit more about that? Actually, I can't. I'm not supposed to tell oh. <laughs> who I am or, or where I appear because they would like people to be looking for me in the crowd scenes. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, yeah, so we'll keep an eye out for you then. Great. Yeah. Um, so I saw an interview with you and Ron Moore, and he said something that kind of struck me. Is he said that in his experience, science fiction fans are all historians? Oh, yes. No, he's uh, dead right about that, because almost always the protagonist in a science fiction or fantasy, if you care to make the distinction, a story is uh, is an alien of some sort. They're an outsider. They come into this you know mysterious world. And in fact, that's exactly what uh, what uh, both a time traveler or in fact a historian does is they look into this alien time. You know, it's just a, a future uh, of a former version of their present time, but even so, it's just as alien in its uh, its concepts, its cultures, its customs. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, this, the American Revolutionary War plays a really prominent role in these books. Could you just talk about uh, sort of some of the things you've learned about the Revolutionary War era that you think might be the biggest surprise to modern day Americans? Ah, well, I don't know. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of detail to the 18th century, of course, and you know you will find a tremendous amount of detail in my books. Uh, they're they're sort of immersive in that uh, in that regard. Uh, as for the American Revolution, there were a great number of uh, of conflicts, both political and military, that aren't really talked about in the history books. Uh, for instance, how many people who don't live in New Jersey have ever heard of the Battle of Monmouth? And yet that's sort of the military centerpiece of this particular book. And it uh, was a big, messy battle. It was the longest battle of the revolution. It took place from before dawn till after dark. Uh, hundreds of men died, but mostly of heat stroke. <laughs> it was a series of pitched battles. It was terribly confusing. No one on the field had any idea what was going on. 
And yet, you know, it was a really important battle. And why is that? Not because the Americans won, but because they didn't lose. It was the first battle fought when uh, Washington's troops emerged from their long winter at Valley Forge. So he had, you know, spent endless months, you know, drilling this this raw-boned army into something that could confront, you know, the might of the British army, he hoped. And so when the British began to leave Philadelphia, Washington and his men took out after them. They were only 20 miles away in Valley Forge. So they were hot on uh, General Clinton's heels. Now, Clinton was not merely withdrawing from Philadelphia. He was guarding the safety of thousands of loyalists who were also escaping from Philadelphia because they didn't want to be left behind if Washington was going to come in and occupy the city, which he was instantly. So uh, General Clinton was at a substantial disadvantage here. Uh, At the same time, he did have the British Army. He had uh, about 2,000 more men than Washington did. Uh, They were trained troops. Washington's troops were about half militiamen. That is, they were not trained and they were carrying, you know, just what they what they had at home, which in some cases was a musket and others was a hoe. Uh, so, you know, the fact that Washington's army did not lose that engagement was tremendously heartening to the whole American cause. If they had lost it, the revolution would have ended right there. Hmm. I mean, were there any particular resources that were helpful in uh, researching this book in particular? Yeah, for specific battles and so forth, the best resource that I found is usually the Osprey's Men at War series. They're very carefully written, and they include a lot of minutiae, including uh, the order of battle and the names of the individual commanding officers of the units, uh, things like that, as well as you know, fight, uh, doing the lead-up to the battle and then fighting it step-by-step with maps and everything. They're very, very detailed and, and usually very clearly written. So I used, uh, used their guide to the Battle of Monmouth as, as kind of the backbone for that part of the of the story. However, that battle also included a number of uh, figures of the American Revolution, from George Washington down to the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, Matt Anthony Wayne, and a number of other people whose uh, whose names are are memorable. And uh, this was their first you know major engagement for the most part. So I picked up a few of them and you know spotlighted them in a little more detail. And for them, I would look up individual biographies. And uh, you know Nathaniel Green, for instance, who was what they call a fighting Quaker in the he had, had been raised as a Quaker, but uh, had, a, had abandoned that uh, that faith, not only to fight in the uh, in the American Revolution, but that was what allowed him to be a general. Hmm. Okay, oh, so that's interesting. I mean, because the Quakers are famously pacifistic. Um, yes, exactly. How? Um, were there a lot of fighting Quakers like that? Or? Yes, there were. Yes, there were, um, and particularly in that battle, because of the nearness of Philadelphia, which of course was a you know, major a center for the for the Quakers. So there were a lot of them from the surrounding countryside, and a good many of them decided. Well, you know, uh, you know, the basic structure of uh, Quakers is the meeting, um, and they really have no clergy, no rituals, no liturgy, or whatever. But there is this uh, this weekly or bi-weekly meeting where the entire congregation comes together and, you know, discusses anything they think needs discussing and then join together in worship, but worship as they feel individually moved to do so. Um, they do have not exactly an authority, but uh, but there are what are called weighty meetings, uh, which is kind of the next uh, thing that this would be kind of a central um, meeting that that sent out not directives but uh, sort of stated what they felt to be the sense of the meeting. You know that how how a Quaker should conduct him or herself in the current circumstances. Anyway, Philadelphia yearly meeting, which was the weightiest of the of the meetings, uh, had sent out a uh, an opinion to the Quakers uh, throughout the colonies, saying that uh, given their dedication to pacifism and so forth, they felt that Quakers should support the cause of King George. 
and you know, let the rebellion you know, be taken care of by the army and so forth and, and crushed because this seemed to them to be the better path toward peace. Uh, which it might have been, it uh, would have evolved in a, well, we would have been Canada, but uh, <laughs> essentially. But uh, there were a number of Quakers who disagreed with this, and uh, Quakers are very, very contentious in terms of speech, if not always in terms of, of action. And a great many uh, Quakers felt, you know, moved of the spirit, as they said, to take up arms in the cause of the of the rebellion. We do have a Quaker physician working with the army, who is a uh, a friend of, of Claire Fraser's, and uh, we explore the Quaker philosophy in some detail uh, throughout the book, not merely with regard to this particular battle. But, uh, you know, it's a, an interesting philosophy, and the more interesting when it comes up against what you might call the realities of life on the frontier. Yeah, so I mean, how did that affect their uh, relationship with the wider Quaker community after the war? A great many of them were put out of their meetings or read out of meetings, as they sometimes say, for uh, for doing this. And uh, some of them formed smaller, you know, sort of independent meetings of like-minded people. And some of them, you know, just practiced their faith on their own with, outside of a meeting. And some abandoned it completely, you know, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, joined the faith of, of their spouse uh-huh. if they were married to someone who wasn't a Quaker. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And also, I heard you say in your podcast that an example of a historical detail you gave was that there, there were landmines in 1752. There were, uh, Could yeah. you talk about these landmines and how, like, what, what, where'd they come from? <laughs> I triggered them, etc. Uh, well, they were essentially gunpowder-filled devices, and they were triggered by fuses. So, you know, but they were uh, the way that... Uh, 18th century battles worked was that uh, generally as a matter of procedure, the armies would line up facing each other in uh, in ranks and then you know advance on each other till they got close enough, you know, either to charge with bayonets to fire volleys or if you had artillery to tell uh, the other side came within uh, cannon shot. So what you would do if you knew where the where the ground was that a that a fight was going to take place on is you would mine parts of it and you wait for the uh, for the enemy to advance over it and then set off your fuses. I mean, landmines weren't ex- weren't extensively used, but they were used. They were more frequently used, though, in undermining fortifications for uh, cities that were under siege. So you would you would plant you know, essentially a bomb at the base of a of a of a wall and then retire to a, a safe distance and set it off. Hmm. I've actually I actually heard you say that you get a lot of letters from soldiers who read your books. I do. Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, they uh, they the books are very popular with servicemen. Uh, a lot of them who are deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan will go to a bookstore and uh, pick up the biggest book they can find for the flight, which is often enough one of mine. And when they get to the other side, they uh, call their families and they send the rest of the series. And uh, they they empathize with Jamie Fraser. You know, he's a warrior as they are, and he's fighting for the same things they are. So you know, they identify with him. You know, they're very concerned with his his. his burdens and his responsibilities and how he how he uh, reacts to them but beyond that they are also you know surprisingly interested and involved in the uh, the relationships of the main characters because uh, one of them said to me in a letter he said you know you get a weekly phone call and uh, usually half of it is taken up with just domestic inquiries you know how's your cold you know did, did Tommy flunk out of school <laughs> sort of thing and it's you know very stilted and by the time you're relaxed with each other again you know the phone calls over so it's kind of unsatisfying he said uh, with the books to talk about you know you can say oh I'm up to chapter so and so have you read this yet and if if she has you know then you can say what would you do what she did you know and you know, and if you and, you know maybe she says yes maybe she says no but anyway the conversation takes place on a on a much more immediately intimate level 
um, because they can discuss sort of their own relationship in the in the safe context of the relationship of these characters, and it, it develops a a strong sense of intimacy and you know rapid communication. Uh -huh. I mean, could you talk about? Male readers in general. I mean, your books, I think, have a uh, predominantly female readership because they were published initially as romance. Um, yeah, that's why they have a predominantly <laughs> female readership. It took me years to make uh, Barnes and Noble take them out of the romance section, but I finally made it. When uh, I sold the book, uh, it was bought by a general fiction editor who bought it because she said, this is the best book I've ever read. And she took it to her editorial meeting and said, you know, the same thing. And they said, oh, great, you know, what kind of book is it? She looked at it and said, well, I have no idea, really. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, there was a lot of marketing discussion, which I was not privy to. Of course, I had no idea that it was taking them any time at all. Uh, but it took them about 18 months. And uh, I learned much later that uh, they came very close to canceling the contract and giving me back the book because they could not decide how to market it. This was before Amazon and other online marketers made it possible to have multiple categorizations of a book. So any given book uh, went to a bookstore, it went on a shelf, the shelf had a label, so you had to call a book something. And uh, they just couldn't decide what to do because it actually isn't one thing or another. It's, it's an amalgam of maybe six or seven different genres that I personally liked when I was writing the book. So... Um, Finally, my agent called and he said, well, they've made up their minds at last what to do with your book. He said, it's a hardcover, softcover deal. So the hardcover is easy. It just goes up front with the other hardcover fiction. This was still back in the days of B. Dalton and Walden books, and that's all there was. All the hardcover fiction just went up together in a front section. And he said, but they'd like to try to sell in the paperback as romance. And I said, as what? I said, you know, I, I, read, I read romance. I like well-written romance, but I have read enough of it to know that's not what I'm writing. <laughs> so I've got two objections to this. You call it romance, and I will never be reviewed by the New York Times. Not that that's a big problem. I can live with that. I said, but much more important, you will cut off the entire male half of my readership. I said, there's things in these books that men see that women don't see, and there's things that they respond to in a much different way than women do. And I wouldn't like that to be lost. Well, he was a man. <laughs> he said, yes, I am understand. He said, we could insist that they call them science fiction or fantasy because of the, uh, the supernatural elements. He said, but bear in mind that a bestseller in FFF is 50,000 in paperback. A bestseller in romance is 500,000. I said, well, you've got a point. <laughs> As my first editor famously said, these have to be word of mouth books because they're too weird to describe to anyone, which is totally true. But uh, what I figured is if that's the case, uh, then obviously it makes much better sense to expose them to 500,000 people who will all go out and tell their friends than to start with 50,000 and grow more slowly. Because once someone has read the book, they will, of course, immediately recognize that it is not this or it's not that, you know, but that it is a, a distinct thing unto itself and they can go out and tell their friends, yeah, this is the best book I've ever read. <laughs> uh, well, so, so what are some of those things that uh, your male readers and female readers tend to see differently? Uh, they tend to see uh, certain situations differently. Uh, for instance, I have never, ever had a male reader be even faintly upset by this banking scene, whereas, as I say, the younger female readers just jump up and down and froth at the mouth about it. But uh, the men, you know, they, they see where Jamie is coming from. They sympathize with him. You know? And uh, and consequently, they find the scene funnier rather than anything else. Uh, I mean, they're just, uh, they're just not bothered about it. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, women, uh, some women find it deeply erotic. Uh, and I, well, actually, some men do too. But uh, that's a, a similarity rather than a difference. But that would be one of the scenes. Others are, you know, scenes involving... Uh, I'm not sure what you would call it, antisocial actions. You know, there are some cases in which, uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, uh, 
man comes across a, a young girl who's been burned almost to death in the when her cabin was set on fire, and he finds her, you know, near death in the ashes and uh, unable to uh, to let her suffer. He smothers her. Uh, men are okay with this. They find it, you know, very deeply upsetting, and they tell me how how upset they would be themselves to have to do that. But they always put it that way: to have to do that. You know, whereas women uh, write and they say, oh, I could never do that. You know, it just doesn't, it, there's, yeah, it's like they they feel they have a choice and the men don't. Hmm. I, heard, I heard you say that the men are a lot more squeamish about the scene where Jamie is tortured. Well, yeah, uh, I, was, I just had occasion to explain to uh, uh, one of the production people regarding a line in one of the, of the scripts uh, about a situation in which, uh, you know, which, non-consensual buggery might have been involved and you know they had the character saying you know my father wouldn't have minded about the buggery which i wrote back and i said oh i bet he would and this is you know a fairly uh gut level response on the part of straight men you know that the, it's not that they have any objection to anyone doing that if they want to but it's just uh yeah they find the the notion you know personally repulsive you know they don't want to they don't want to even think about it hmm. um but everyone involved in the production, though, has been uh, has been good about uh, you know maintaining. All oh this yeah, stuff. they're yeah they're they're very very kind about including me in discussions and showing me things, and uh, they uh, they are kind enough to ask my opinion, but under no legal compulsion to accept it. But they do pay attention, you know. And and uh, if I have a real concern, which is very very rare, in fact, I am extremely pleased with what they've been doing and uh, would not dream of getting in their way. But, you know, every once in a while, I'll point out something and say, well, you know, this this just wouldn't happen in the 18th century in Scotland because, <laughs> and, you know, then the, in such cases, they will do something to change it or to address the situation. Oh, can you can you think of what any other examples of that might have been where you made a suggestion and they tweaked something a little bit? Yeah, uh -huh, yeah, there was one um, scene. It's just an incidental scene where Clara's you know, passing time while waiting for the rent collecting party to get going. And she comes across a group of women who invite her to join them for afternoon tea and they're playing cards and, you know, chatting. And I said, in the 18th century in Scotland, you know, everybody regarded playing cards as, you know, as a straight ticket to hell. You wouldn't <laughs> have found a pack of cards anywhere in the Scottish Highlands. And I said, you wouldn't have found tea either, for that matter. Not only in the only in the large cities like Edinburgh or Inverness, uh, but not out in the in the remote villages. And I said, furthermore, you know, in the remote highlands, these women would have been working, you know, 18 hours a day. They would have been, you know, milking goats or, or cutting grass, or they would most likely have been walking wool. That's a specific word, W-A-U-L K-I-N-G, walking. And uh, what it meant was uh, two lines of women would sit down with a, a length of freshly uh, woven wool and freshly dyed, and they would uh, wet it with uh, boiling hot urine. And then they would squish it back and forth between the lines with their hands or, in some cases, their feet. It was a big, bulky uh, roll of, of cloth. And what this did was to both to set the dye, hot urine is a mordant for dye, and also to uh, felt the surface to make it waterproof. It's a very time consuming process. So over the years, uh, walking songs evolved, and there are a lot of traditional walking songs. So I said, you know, they would much more likely have been doing something like that. But anyway, when I actually saw some of the footage from uh, from that bit, uh, they had gone to the Highland Folkways Museum and had actually had women walking wool, and that's who Claire joined. So I was really pleased that they did that. It, it turned out to be very effective. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I actually, I was reading an article. I don't remember when this was from exactly, but it was talking about how people used to think that reading novels was just really, you know, really bad oh, yeah, for your really character. Bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's entirely true. (laughs) Cultural uh, concepts are kind of uh, one of the most fascinating things about historical fiction, but in some cases, uh, there's always a temptation, I think, amongst some historical writers to shade things toward the modern point of view. You know, they won't show people doing something that would have been perfectly normal for the time, but that is considered reprehensible today. For instance, women drinking alcohol while pregnant. I get a lot of people being just appalled that uh, that Claire drinks uh, drinks wine while she's pregnant. I'm saying it was 1743. Everyone drank wine regardless. And in fact, uh, while Claire comes from uh, 1945, uh, there was absolutely no idea in anyone's head that drinking alcohol while pregnant was would, would cause any trouble whatsoever. You know, the, the thought that you ought not to drink while pregnant was much, much later. In fact, I uh, had my first child in 1982, and I was still told by you know, actually uh, nurses and so forth, you know, have a have a glass of wine at dinner; it will help you relax, sort of thing. Well, so so was uh, 18th century America this period you're writing about a, a time in which uh, reading novels was considered uh, suspect or? Uh... Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, Nathaniel Green, the Quaker general I mentioned to you earlier, he said that he uh, broke with his sect, as he put it, in part because his uh, his father considered reading to be a pastime that tended to separate men from God, <laughs> and whereas he himself was an avid reader. <laughs> hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of avid readers, uh, tell us about the ladies of Lollybrock. Oh, well, they are the oldest uh, of the online fan groups. Uh, they formed themselves in 1994, uh, in part as a as a, <laughs> a means of finding a place to talk to other like-minded readers. They told me that they had tried going to uh, various book discussion sites, and uh, mostly romance sites, and uh, as the book was being sold as a romance at that point. And they said that the, that the reception they got was so hostile and negative with people, you know, uh, certified romance readers saying, well, that's not a romance, and, you know, and Generally, they were felt driven away, and so they were moved to uh, to start their own group, uh, which has been a very long-running group. I think they have about 10,000 members, or did at their peak. And uh, yeah, it's, it's worldwide. I have been to some of their gatherings, at which they had people from New Zealand and Japan. Yeah, and you were ju- there was just a big uh, gathering in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Just recently. Yes, but it's not them. That was a uh, a uh, fan retreat held by the uh, by my Random House publisher. Um, and I have no idea where they came up with this idea, but it was uh, three days before pub date, and they said we want you to come and you know spend a day with 500 of your fans. <laughs> and I said okay, and they said you know everybody will get a free book, a free copy of Moby, so they'll get it you know pre-pub. They can buy one more copy for a friend if they want to, and you know we'll have this all this interesting programming going on for them. And uh, you know, the Stars people came and brought a couple of special trailers they had made for the thing. But you know the the idea they, this was not explained to me. It's just my uh, my notion of what what they had in mind was to kind of seed the market with all these enthusiastic people who had you know seen the uh, the trailer and. Had had a chance to read the book before publication, all rushing out and you know talking about it and how great it was on their various blogs and uh, and uh, websites, uh, which is pretty much what happened. Uh, so, so what was some of that programming you mentioned? Oh, let's see. Well, I I talked, I gave a speech, and uh, then. Uh, I went to sign books, uh, which took several hours, uh, and they had some Scottish country dancers. They had a comedy improv troupe. Who, I couldn't tell exactly what they were doing, but they seemed to be fairly funny. They were, you know, riffing off lines from the from the books and getting the audience to participate and so forth. They had uh, 18th century crafts 
actually, <laughs> and, uh, and an eight, a cook who specializes in 18th century recipes taken from my books. Uh, Outlander Kitchen is her handle, and uh, she does a lot of, of this. And uh, see, then, as I say, we did uh, the trailers for the stars uh, stuff, followed by a panel that had me and the stars uh, lady and uh, the head publicist from Random House and my editor and uh, the very well-known bookseller from my town uh, for the Poison Pen bookstore is uh, who handles my autograph sales. Uh, in other words, they take pre-orders and will ship anywhere in the world. So if you want a personalized book, you just call them and uh, I go by the store once uh, every week or two and sign everything and they ship it out. So very, it's a very long-standing relationship. But anyway, all these people were talking about their relationships with my books, uh, starting with Outlander and you know their relationships with me. And you know, it was very nice. And they had a, a nice video that the fans had made that invited to send in little clips of you know what Outlander means to me. And it was very moving, very touching, all very sweet. And then we had a, a, a hour and a half uh, sort of meet and greet, mingle over cocktails and you know 18th century snacks kind of thing in the in the afternoon. So the whole thing was just beautifully organized. Very well run and uh, everybody who was there seemed to have a ball well so when people are talking about how much your books mean to them did it, do any of those uh, things that they said stand out particularly um, well, various uh, various people, you know, have particularly moving stories, especially the ones who say that they came to the books, you know, in the middle of a crisis or, you know, having you know, terrible health problems themselves or in the wake of the death of a loved one. And they found that uh, the books were sufficiently absorbing, that they were able to escape into the book, and uh, and that the, I guess you'd say the ethos of the book uh, uplifted them, that they felt, you know, protected and, you know, and heartened by, by the stuff that went on in the book, which is, you know, very, very gratifying to me as an author. Uh-huh. What, what sort of reactions have your fans had so far to the stuff from the TV show that's been released publicly? They've absolutely loved every bit that they've seen, and I'm uh, pretty sure that they will love the show itself. I saw the uh, the complete first episode, complete with score and with all the production values keyed in, at the Sony LA screenings uh, last month, and it was just fabulous. Uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've heard people talking about how how hot Sam Hewen is. And, uh... <laughs> He's a lovely actor, and so is Katrina, who plays Claire. Although someone was saying she her her eyes are the wrong color or something like that. Well, you're always going to get this sort of whining <laughs> going on. Oh, her eyes are blue. I don't think I can bear to watch the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's the I mean the it's the 18th century. The lighting is such that 90 percent of the time you can't tell what color anybody's eyes are, and you know this is completely irrelevant to to the character. It's just that people you know develop their own. Uh, very vivid metal images based on what's in the book, which you know, is a compliment to the writing, I think. But uh, at the same time, it's obviously completely impossible for production people to telepathically extract the images of <laughs> you know, uh, 20 million people and uh, distill them into something that would be instantly recognizable to all 20 million and find an actor who embodies that and who can also act. I mean, you know, this is this is silly. So, you know, uh, I think people will very rapidly get over these uh, these things like within five seconds of beginning to watch. Uh, all right, cool. Well, I mean, this show sounds really great. And, uh, and I know everyone's really excited about this new book. Do you want to just tell us uh, what do you have coming up? Are there any other new or upcoming projects you want to mention? Oh, there's lots of them, but uh, I'm actually on a heavy-duty book tour at the moment and won't actually be able to work until I get back home. I have a two-week break in July, but other than that, it's going to be pretty nonstop between now and September. 
which is when I will finally get my regular writing routine back. But I have a half-finished crime novel. There is book nine awaiting my attention. There's a prequel volume about Jamie Fraser's parents, Brian and Ellen, and the Jacobite Rising of 1715. There are a number of interesting novellas. I write novellas to kind of fill in lacunae and uh, beef out uh, side stories. Uh, uh, so there's the all these little sprouts all over the the bodies of the of the large novels, and you know there is also the second Outlandish Companion, which is the nonfiction uh, book that accompanies the the series. Uh, the first Companion, uh, which has been very popular, covered the first four books of the series. The second uh, volume will cover the second four books and uh, will include you know all the kinds of you know trivia and background information that people are interested in. That's about eighty five percent complete though, and with luck we might actually have that out by uh, by spring. All right, great. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Diana Gappledone, and her new book is called Written in My Own Heart's Blood, and the Outlander TV series premieres on Stars on August 9th. That's so, right. So, Diana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Diana Gappledone for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing Women Destroy Science Fiction a special crowdfunded double issue of Lightspeed magazine written and edited entirely by women. And I'm joined today by not one, not two, but three guest geeks. So first up, we've got my good friend and longtime co-host, John Just Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Robot Uprisings and Dead Man's Hand. So John, welcome back. Good to be here. Then next up, we've got Christy Yant. She's the assistant editor of Lightspeed Magazine and guest editor of Women Destroy Science Fiction. Her short fiction appears in books such as Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy and in magazines such as Analog and Science Fiction World. She was also our first intern here at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, as well as our first guest geek back in episode 42, and she and John got married back in 2011. So Christy, good to have you back with us. It's very nice to be back. Thanks, Dave. And also joining us today is Wendy Wagner, who you may remember from our panel on Dungeons & Dragons novels back in episode 105. She's the managing slash associate editor of both Lightspeed and Nightmare magazines, and her short fiction appears in magazines such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and in books such as Armored and The Way of the Wizard, and her first novel Skinwalkers, a Pathfinder tie-in, is out now. So, Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Okay, so I'd like to start out and just talk a little bit about what it's like for women to enter the fantasy and science fiction genre as readers. One thing that made a big impression on me at one of the first conventions I went to was a woman on one of the panels talked about how she had tried to read The Hobbit as a kid, and just all, there's, there's, all the characters are men, there are no female heroes in the whole book, and she just found that very, it made, her, it, made it seem like it was a boy's book and not really meant for her, and I'm just wondering if you guys had similar experiences to that. And if so, sort of at what age you started to notice that sort of thing. Um, so, Wendy, why don't we start with you? Did you uh, have that sort of experience? I, I definitely think it was something I, I picked up on. You know, the first real sci-fi that I read was Robert Heinlein. And, um, and actually, I think the very first science fiction novel I ever read was by George R.R. R. Martin. Um, it's called Tough Voyaging. And definitely, I think both, both of those early introductions featured, you know, a lot of gals that were kind of on the, they were very <laughs> cool 
cool and I liked them at the time, but I don't necessarily know that I would want to be any of the women that were in any of those books. <laughs> Did, wait, do you remember which Heinlein book it was? Um, I think probably the first Heinlein I ever read was A Cat Who Walks Through Walls because it had a picture of a cat on the <laughs> front. <laughs> um, and I, I don't really remember what that book is about at all. Um, and I know I, I read a number of other works by him. I really probably only remember very strongly A Stranger in the Strange Land. I think I've probably read it twice. And, um, and Starship Troopers. Um, which actually I just read Starship Troopers like a couple years ago when I was getting, working on Armored, but, um, or working on my story for Armored. So, uh, you know, I didn't read a lot of science fiction because when I was, you know, like nine or 10, when, which was a time when I read a ton, a ton, a ton of books. On the other hand, I was reading a lot of fantasy and I was reading a lot of stuff by like Tamora Pierce, who is definitely saying girls can do anything. So I think maybe that was why I was reading fantasy was because I felt like there, it was easy to find books that were saying, yeah, you're a girl, go do something cool. Mm. Well, you know, um, Women Destroyed Science Fiction has all these personal essays. And speaking of Heinlein, in one of the personal essays, the author talks about Heinlein's novel, Podcane of Mars, which I don't remember at all. But, um, yeah. well, yeah, do you want to talk about that? I have to say that that was Pat Murphy who mentioned Podcane of Mars. And I'm, I'm trying to think of exactly what she said about it. Um, I know she started her essay with this wonderful line, something about how I thank Robert Heinlein for making me the writer I am today. Um, and, and just talking about how Podcane was this teenager and, and Podcane of Mars, I, I think is often credited as being like one of the first and, and a book early on that was marketed for young adults and how it was sort of groundbreaking as a piece of young adult literature and how, wow, it's so exciting. It's, it's about a teenage girl. Um, but I, I think Pat pointed out that like Podcane, she had all these you know, kind of adventures and I, I haven't read the book, but what she said is like, basically Podcane decides that what's great is taking care of babies. I can go <laughs> be on these starships and take care of babies. And that's just so great. <laughs> and I remember uh, I read that essay from her. And I was like, Oh my gosh, if I had read that as a teenager or younger, <laughs> I would have thrust. Oh, I would have thrown the book across the room. Uh, yeah, actually, there was a story that we ran in Lightspeed by Cat Rambo, um, and uh, uh, the character's name—the character was named after Podcane. And uh, in that story, it's basically like a, a liberated sex bot story. Um, so it's almost like uh, it kind of sounds like maybe she was deliberately like sort of uh, talking back to the Heinlein book in in the sense that you know it's like, oh, we're gonna go out to the stars and have babies. How about we're gonna go to the stars and have sex with robots instead? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the name of that story, John? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's like uh, so. Uh, I don't know. I can't find it. I'll, I'll look it up. <laughs> okay. How about uh, Christy? Uh, what kind of experiences did you have uh, coming into the field? As a as a kid, uh, you know, you're talking about reading Tolkien as a as a girl, and um, I read I read uh, Tolkien when I was 11. I read The Hobbit and the and the trilogy on a road trip with my family, and and um, you know. I just identified with the non-humans in those books, and it never occurred to me why that was. It's because none of them were, you know, none of the humans were women. Um, and I think I felt 
very non-human a lot of the time. And and I'm one of those uh, women who came to um, feminism very late in life. I definitely internalized all of the stuff. And it never occurred to me that I wasn't reading girls. It never occurred to me that uh, I wasn't represented because I didn't think I was supposed to be. I was supposed to want to be a boy, you know? And so it, you asked, uh, you know, at what age uh, we started noticing. I was probably 37, <laughs> honestly. It, it just, I, I think even when John and I met, I was still kind of like, no, I, I don't think this is a problem really. What? Um, and, uh, you know, I had to be exposed to people outside my family. I, I, think, um, I think sometimes we forget that before the internet, you know, our experiences were very insular. Mine was anyway. And, and you only know the people that you actually get to interact with and you only get their ideas. Um, unless you're, you know, widely, widely read in periodicals and what have you. And, and it's really the internet that um, has allowed me to connect with uh, ideas that sort of freed me from um, what I and others call girl hate. Um, I, you know, I was a, I was a girl and a woman who uh, didn't want to be one because I believed that we were inferior. And um, I needed people like Wendy, <laughs> actually, <laughs> you, know, you know, to I express can't... some of those things that I didn't know how, I didn't know um, the language for feminism. I, I certainly had never heard of Joanna Russ. I had never, uh, you know, encountered these ideas before. And, and I, again, I came to it so late in life. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of, I feel kind of bad for that tiny Christie who you know, would rather have been a hobbit than, than a person, you know, so. I feel super lucky because when I was a teenager, we moved out of our super tiny town to a slightly larger tiny town. And at our library, we had books by Octavia Butler and mm. Sherry S. Tepper and um, Ursula Le Guin. And I, I found those books when I was, you know, 14 or so, and they were so incredibly resonant. And they were like a whole new universe that I was like so excited about. And I, I wish that, you know, 14-year-old Wendy could have taken you to the library with me. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I look back on what I was reading, okay, I read Madeline Lengel. I mean, that was my, you know, my first sci-fi novels were Lengel, right? But, uh, Joanna Russ, in her book, she talks about how one of the things that, that we do, uh, we humans, um, is to make successful people outliers. So, sure, I was reading uh, a woman science fiction writer who I loved, but it never occurred to me that I could be like that because she was an outlier. She was different. She was special. I mean, so, Wendy, you, you, you mentioned some of these authors like Sherry S. Tepper and Ursula Gwynn and Octavia Butler. Um, was it just the fact that they had strong female characters or was it also the fact that they created worlds in which gender roles were different um, that you were seeing in the in the stuff you were reading? You know, I, I think a lot of it is that that latter idea that you mentioned that they were making these worlds where it was kind of normal to be a woman who did things. I think so often in, you know, science fiction movies or really 
practically all movies or books, there are, are women characters. They might be interesting. They might be cool, but they don't do anything. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, they're the the girl in the background who shows up at the end and says like, oh, you look, you're so wonderful. But that, I mean, Octavia Butler, she had these worlds that she created where uh, Lilith, who's the, the main character in the, the trilogy, which escapes me what the name of the, the trilogy is. Uh, it's but, Lil- you know, Lilith Sprood, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got aliens and you've got people that don't want to be around aliens and you have people that want to work with the aliens and you've got Lilith kind of in the middle of it all. And, and that wasn't weird that she was like taking leadership in her community and, and doing stuff. She was, that's just who she was. She was a, a doer and, um, and she wasn't like perfect or weird. She just seemed like a normal woman. And I just really liked her. And I think I could really identify with her. So, Christy, uh, something that you had said about Madeline Langle that jumped out at me is, you know, she was an outlier. She seemed so special. And I do feel as if in our culture, um, the women who are successful and the women who are smart, it's like typically in they're like tokens, right? Like in a book. Or, or like TV shows, you've got the group of guys and that one special lady who can be around them because she's like extra strong or extra smart or extra something. But she can only be included in the story because she is special. Otherwise, she would be at home, you know, vacuuming or something. And even in like literature, you know, you're going to get an anthology of great stories and there will be dudes in there who are maybe like, you know, they're like that. That guy who's like 75% awesome, he had like one big hit and then, but but they can still include all these guys. And then there will be like one woman who's like representing like, and she's in there because she's so good. You know, like it's Jane Austen. She's, she's as good as the men. Right. Yeah. And and she's, pr- she's kind of stomped out like, you know, this, all the other women are, are garbage because right. there can only be one. Hmm. See, John, did you ever come up with the title of that story? Yeah, it's called Long Enough and Just So Long. Yeah, see, I knew it I knew it had some I knew it had something to do with long and I couldn't I couldn't figure out what the placement of the words was and uh I thought maybe yesterday was in there, but I, I was, it was it was a hard one to pull off the top of my head. <laughs> but but you came through in the end. I did. Well I looked it up on I Googled it. I, mean, <laughs> I, I didn't actually remember it. Don't give me credit for that. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, so you, you guys are talking about, you know, sort of women writers and you guys are both writers. Could you just talk about how like when you started going to conventions and writing workshops and writing um, how your how being female affected that sort of your experience of that? Um, so so like Wendy, um, what you could you talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, for me, getting involved with with writing, uh, I went through a whole personal set of demons where I didn't write science fiction and fantasy because I thought I should be writing the great American novel. And when I didn't wake up and become F. Scott Fitzgerald, it was really sort of heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't write for a long time. And then when I did, I was like, what the heck? I should be writing science fiction and fantasy. Um, 
and, and so I really, I've always, I've been kind of self-taught and I have never gone to any of the major workshops. Uh, the only workshopping I've really done has been uh, our local con runs a workshop every year where you can like pair up with uh, local pro writers and they it's it's always like two pros two non-pros and you read each other's work and um the first time I ever did this I went into this room and there was a lady who worked for a local small press and then there was um you know, a, a short story writer who I now know, he's a really cool guy. And then the other dude, the non-pro, I just, everything I said, he just didn't seem interested in it all. Um, you know, I gave him my feedback and it was the same feedback that the other two people gave. Like, you know, I think the, the story needs to start five pages later or something like that. I, I don't even quite remember what the feedback was, but we all said the same thing. And yet he didn't really pay any attention to me. It was like he was sitting in the room with a talking dog, but like a boring talking dog. I mean, like, like if <laughs> talking dogs were like everywhere and you're like, oh God, I can't listen to what another dog says. Uh, and it was totally like that. I felt like I was completely not taken seriously. And how uh, anybody could ever find you boring, Wendy, is beyond me. I mean, that like <laughs> how how self-absorbed does one have to be to sit in a room with Wendy and and tune out? <laughs> uh, Christy's way too nice. Hmm. Um, but no, I so I, I feel very lucky. I haven't gone to a ton of conventions. Um, that was probably like my worst experience besides, you know, a couple of times being on panels and kind of being in that same situation where it's like there are dudes talking and people seem to take them kind of more seriously than me. Although, granted, I do kind of sound like Minnie Mouse and I usually <laughs> pepper my expressions with ridiculous, you know, cutesy things. But um and then, Engaging and, only, and adorable are the words you're looking for. Oh, see, I need this woman around all the time. <laughs> uh, so I feel really lucky. I haven't experienced a lot of the, the things that people talked about, like the, the people who wrote essays for Women Destroy Science Fiction. There was a convention I went to where there was an issue with a guy, they called him the Creeper, who, mm -hmm. who made a lot <laughs> of women really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, and I did run into him at a party, but I was with someone else and we, he, he was a little bit sketchy, but luckily we were kind of rescued by someone else who was like, oh, I must talk to these people. And we were able to kind of give this guy the cold shoulder. So it was only later where I was like, oh man, this guy was really, really being scary and offensive. And I feel really lucky that I just managed to ignore him. So I've been very lucky with my experiences. Mm -hmm. No, but that really startled me, though, the first time I heard women talking about how they would take younger women uh, who convention goers aside and say, like, OK, here are the guys who are creeps that you have to stay away from. Um, and, yeah, it was just, it's just really disturbing. And I, I was pretty oblivious to that for for a while, you know. Yeah, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Christy, do you what, what what sort of experiences have you had? Yeah, I was just thinking about. Uh, the creeper, <laughs> because <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I don't think I've been to a convention yet where there wasn't one mm -hmm. that, you know, there was an issue and there was security involved. And there was, um, I remember, uh, one, one particular, uh, world fantasy where, uh, one of our friends, Wendy had to 
you know, step into a really uncomfortable role and handle a situation where this guy was just going from woman to woman and being as, as uh, awful as possible. And, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it seems to happen at every convention. I think my second convention, I was prepped upon and, and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, again, being sort of oblivious as I am to many of these things, I didn't realize what was happening until I then on the internet read that the exact same thing had happened to a number of other women, um, same dude. And I mean, it was almost like there was a script there, there probably was an actual script that had worked for years. And, and I got to hear the script, you know, in the bar alone. Um, uh, but you know, I, I have never felt threatened at, at a convention. That doesn't mean that, um, there aren't many women who do, you know, I, uh, also when I started going to conventions, um, I already had people from Twitter, mostly, really, that's where I knew people from. And um, so I kind of immediately had a a group of people to hang with. And so I was never, you know, a woman alone. Um, uh, Despite the fact that we were all, you know, brand new, we we stuck together and it was fine. Hmm. Well, so Christy, what do you think in, in recent years? I mean, there have been these, um, you know, zero tolerance policies that a bunch of conventions have put into place. And we just talk about like is is anything been getting better kind of in in the lead up to um to this uh whim destroy science fiction project god i hope so i mean i hope so uh, you know every time something happens now it it uh we hear about it we hear about it and people get upset and uh people are forced to take action and yeah i mean in the time between um between the time that we conceived of this because that summer had been such a disaster on so many levels um, and the time that it actually came out, it seems like there has been a lot of progress. Um, You know, zero tolerance policies are one of them. Um, Projects like this one, we're certainly not the only one out there. We're not the first and we won't be the last, you know, Um, I don't ever want to pretend that, you know, we invented the all woman, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, TOC that's, you know, at at no point have we claimed that nor would I ever want to. but uh yeah i i want to think that things are getting better um i want to think that just the sheer enthusiasm over this project uh is an indication that it's getting better because it it keeps getting talked about um you know it's been out for a couple weeks and the hashtag is still we have a hashtag guys (laughs) we have an actual hashtag we have taken over the poor um what is it? The uh, the world, world dancer or something, right? The world Dance Sport Federation. Those poor guys are so <laughs> confused right now <laughs> <laughs> because we took over their hashtag. Um, but I, yeah, I mean that there there are the Athena's Daughters projects, um, you know, and and certainly before us, uh, you know, we can look at um, uh, brave pioneers like Anita Sarkeesian. Um, We can look at so many others who are bringing attention to these biases and uh, this really systemic problem of pretending that we are not half of the world. Um, I think it's getting better. I hope it's getting better. I hope it sticks because as other people will point out over and over and over, and I appreciate it, um, this is not the first time we've had this conversation, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I keep seeing things like, um, you know, uh, feminism in the eighties, uh, addressed this before. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, there was one review in particular that said something about, oh, I think the eighties are calling, you know? Um, so, well, they called, I guess, but 
you hung up on them because <laughs> here we are again. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I just hope that we're not doing this again in 10 years. I hope that this isn't something that we have to continue to, to um, you know, hammer into people. Um, yeah. Joanna Russ wrote her book in 1983. Right. I mean, that, and the Tip Tree Award was established in 1991, 92. Yeah. And now it's 2014, and we're still saying, um, mm -hmm. hi, come mm -hmm. review our books. Yes, our short fiction exists. Hello, we're women. <laughs> we exist. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, like, anytime you um, have a project like this and people start talking about it, any post about it inevitably attracts some dude who's going to say something like, oh, well, there was Women of Wonder in the 70s and 80s or whatever, yep. or there was this book or that book. And they point to this one example. It's like, oh, what? Someone did this already? I guess it's all fixed. It's not <laughs> yeah. a problem anymore. You know, and it's like, you know, the reason that these things keep coming up is because it's still a problem. And and it's just, it's it's like so frustrating. It's like I think a lot of times these these guys that post these things, like a lot of times they're just trolls and, and you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be convinced. You're not going to convince them no matter what. But a lot of times I think they're just completely they just are really clueless and they don't realize like, oh, I'm actually part of the problem by saying shit like this. Mm. So. Mm. Well, why don't you guys say a little bit more about exactly what women destroy science fiction is like just what what's in it. and um you know, talk about the, the stories and the essays and stuff like that. Sure. Oh, happy to. Um, yeah. So this, uh, this started as a Twitter joke in September. Um, there had been a, a rash of, um, ill-informed blog posts claiming that women were contaminating science fiction with their romance and, uh, fantasy and therefore it wasn't real science fiction anymore. And, you know, uh, we should call it what it is and go back to our Harlequins or, or whatever. Um, uh, by the way, I totally respect romance writers, so just for the record. Um, but, uh, you know, I got up one morning and sat down to write, and I was on Twitter, and I said, hmm, I feel like destroying science fiction some more today. Who's with me? And there was this, like, flood of replies <laughs> <laughs> of women, like, you have my axe, you know, like, <laughs> it was so great. And uh, And John was watching this, and I get this email like maybe two minutes later going, we should do a special issue. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, we should. Like, <laughs> do you want to edit it? Sure. Um, so yeah, I didn't know what I was in for. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, he was pretty amazing. You know, he, he went, let's do this thing here. You edit it. And I went, okay, I want this, 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 and this, we're going to have this many uh, uh, original stories. And by the way, I want to, I want to, you know, uh, get a, a flash fiction slot open so that we can include 15 more women. And mm -hmm. I want to, I want to replace your entire podcast staff. And I want to, you know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, Rich Horton's out, Rachel's in, you know, like, <laughs> I, I just, he was so kind of like, oh, yeah, no, mm -hmm. that sounds, that sounds like the right thing to do here. So, um, and you know, he's been, he's been running the show for four years now and, and, uh, nobody ever told him really what to do uh <laughs> and, and i have i have to give john a ton of credit for um just letting me roll with this thing and and i know it was sometimes kind of painful because you know this is a well-oiled machine right wendy yeah right yeah um uh wendy's been our managing editor for some time now and before this she worked for fantasy magazine uh before it was rolled into Lightspeed. uh so she knows but you know it's a well-oiled machine and it goes a certain way and we have everything, a flow chart yeah it's, <laughs> well we do thanks to you yes 
um, and uh, you know, and I, I was screwing everything up. <laughs> I was, I was making it so that nothing was going to work with the website. I was going to make it so that, you know, we didn't know what was happening with the podcast. I was making it so that, you know, we were opening to a whole type of fiction we'd never opened to before um, adding, you know, people who were allowed to accept things that, you know, never could have before, you know, it, it was just like this whole upheaval for him. And he was just awesome about it. Well, uh, let me just jump in there real quick before yeah. you continue. But I, I mean, you know, as much as she's giving me credit, I mean, like, props go to Christy for making this into the tremendous success that it's been, because even before we selected all the fiction, which has been very well received so far, um, you know, like you, like she was saying, she's just kept pushing to like add more and make it more special and more special. And, and without her, like, really uh, just you know, taking control like that and really urging us to make it even better. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure it would have been great regardless of, of whether or not we made it as, as huge as we did. But we, instead of, instead of just having like a great issue, we, we had like, we, we created something that is like almost legendary. I mean, you know, it's like, it, it's people are going to remember this for a long time and just based on the early feedback that we've been getting. And, you know, we had this tremendous crowdfunding campaign that funded a thousand percent of what we were uh, shooting for. And, um, so, you know, none of that would have happened if, if not for Christy having like actually pushed us to like, oh no, more special, more women, more, more. <laughs> and, you know, and, so. and even if, even if not a single reader ever remembers this thing, there are, I have to correct myself. So at the time that we went to press, we had 109 women involved. By the time we came, by the time the issue came out, it was 113, 113 women worked on this issue. And if no one else remembers, those 113 are going to because mm -hmm. they got to be a part of making this thing. And it was it was amazing working with each and every one of them. And I, I can't thank them enough. Well, do you want to talk about some of the fiction that you selected? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So we did a couple of things. One, um, we brought in Rachel Swirsky, uh, who is possibly the best read person I know in the field and um asked her to find some great reprints for us and and she did she uh the the tip tree i think is the one that's that's really kind of freaking people out <laughs> i really like that um but uh I, I actually my first selection came from um maria devana headley and she submitted before we were quite open to submissions she's she's a longtime lightspeed author and nightmare author and so um you know when she says hey i have something we go hey could you please send that to us so she did and it was this bizarre surrealist kind of douglas adams-esque uh dave you'll you'll understand why i would appreciate that hmm. um kind of piece about uh you know the president of the galaxy and her ex-husband and and um and food and um and it was so funny and weird and so not at all what i thought i was looking for um i accepted it almost immediately and then kind of built the rest of the issue around that because what that had shown me was the outer edges of science fiction you know and i realized that you know that's the complaint right the complaint is that we're sliming science fiction with our our romance and our fantasy and our weirdness and and whatever else you know we are finding interesting and we're not sticking to our rocket ships and robots and and um so i set out to find good representations of those outer edges and so i found some steampunk and i found uh oh god shannon huh. best mermaid story ever um science fiction mermaids um 
we have a wonderful commenter, God love him, who uh, <laughs> just even having read it still will not admit that mermaids can be science fiction. Just can't mm -hmm. happen. Um, even if they're bioengineered and mermaids is just a nickname, can't happen, can't happen. So, um, yeah, we've got that. We have a wonderful N.K. Jemison story, which we were talking about poking at Heinlein earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a poke at Heinlein also, um, specifically Puppet Masters. So uh, you can go reread it in that light if you feel driven to. Um, we have some amazing uh, newcomers. Heather Clitheroe's uh, Cyborg story is amazing. I just, I um, kind of, actually we have two. Cyborg on the verge of a meltdown story. Want to talk about a mall story? Oh, I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about, but it, it is it is hard to talk about. And the reason it's hard to talk about is just because, uh, I mean, it's so amazing. And, and we went through so much to to get it. And um, Amal was someone that I really, really, really wanted to see submit something. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, Amal Amotar is a, uh, she's an award winning fantasist and poet and editor herself and um and i was really hoping she was going to submit something I, I really really hoped and she didn't and i was a little bit heartbroken about that and so uh toward the end as john mentioned you know we kept this thing kept evolving and i kept kind of insisting on more and more and more <laughs> and so somewhere toward the end i got more and so i got to actually ask her for a story um kind of at the last minute and she was amazing and she's like you know i have this science fiction story that's been brewing for a long time and i don't know i think i can get it done i think i can and so um we engaged in this i don't know weeks long back and forth on um this idea that she had about uh, sentient uh neptune diamond oceans and um it's uh, I, I believe it was Lois Tilton, wasn't it, who said it was the closest thing to hard sci-fi in the book? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a book. Issue. It, mm -hmm. If you haven't seen it yet, physically, <laughs> it's almost 500 pages, so it's really hard not to call it a book. Um, but uh, what she came up with is, you know, exactly what I knew she could do. I mean, as far as science fiction goes, she'd never tried science fiction before, and she came up with this gorgeous, lush uh piece that's that's made up of um of a you know parts journal parts uh, newspaper clippings parts uh you know encyclopedia entries and and they all come together to form this whole um and it was such a neat experience to it it's been so gratifying to see people like oh this is this is awesome this is such a beautiful piece this is this is the closest thing to hard sci-fi in the book you know like mm -hmm. i just i loved that that made me so happy so yeah you, you know i think i think i'm always a good case of where it's like it's it's kind of emblematic of what uh is so great about this project is in that it inspired a lot of women who don't typically or maybe have never tried to write science fiction before to actually write their first science fiction stories. And I know, Christy, you've gotten lots of comments in, via email and via cover letters uh, saying that um, from, from all these other writers. But, like, you know, somebody like Amal, who, you know, you would think, like, oh, well, of course she's written some science fiction. But then you stop and you realize, no, actually, she hasn't. I mean, at least she hasn't published any. And so, you know, I think it's great when we have things like this that actually, you know, nudge people out of their comfort zones, maybe, and, and encourage them that, you know, to believe that, yes, you can do this. And because I think a lot of people, they they have these ideas that, you know, oh, I need an advanced degree in physics to be able to write a real, you know, a real science fiction story or something like that. And they don't realize that, no, you don't. And, and you actually can do this. And so. Yep. 
Yeah, no, my, my first science fiction story that I ever wrote, I wrote only because you asked me to. Mm-hmm. And and that was in, in the Armored Anthology. And, and I think Wendy went through a similar experience with that one. I mean, it's like, whoa, power armor. I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. That's, woo. that's, mm, there's no, no magic in that. <laughs> but, uh, though, though actually Wendy has written quite a bit of um, sort of awesome geological and physics-based stuff before. Mm-hmm. So she, she was a little more ready for that one than I was. <laughs> well, well, actually, Wendy, why don't you tell us a bit more ex- about exactly what your role was on Women Destroy Science Fiction and just is there anything about the project that sticks out in your mind? Sure. Well, you know, I started out, um, you know, I had, had signed up for like the getting information about it and sure, yeah, call me <laughs> if you need any help. But then I didn't hear anything and I kind of forgot about it. And then I, I started working for John at the beginning of the year doing, you know, this managing an associate editor business with Lightspeed. So um, I came in right as we were starting this Kickstarter project and um and, and so then I loaded the world on her shoulders. <laughs> and, and I just kind of, my original role in the project was just, you know, to keep on doing managing editor kind of stuff, which is, you know, making sure people get their contracts on time and that everybody's name gets put in the right place at the right time and, and you know, things like that. Um, and then, then Christy asked if I would help out with nonfiction. She developed some, a lot of ideas already, but you know, she was reading like a thousand submissions and things like that. So she needed a little extra wrangling in the nonfiction world. And now for the Kickstarter, uh, Christy and John had this brilliant idea that instead of just asking people for money, yay, that's fun. Uh, they would make the Kickstarter campaign into like, kind of like the the pregame show for this issue where we would collect these personal essays from people who are working, women who are working in science fiction. And we would take these personal essays and we would have one, we wound up having basically one a day for the month that we ran the Kickstarter campaign and they would post us updates. So everybody had an excuse to go to the website and there would be something new for them to read about. And some of these essays just made you want to like go out and be like, if the patriarchy had a physical embodiment, I would break the patriarchy's kneecaps today. Um, so we had these amazing stories, all the, well, essays, personal essays, and they were so cool. And uh, they decided to include them in with the nonfiction in um, in the in the issue. And then I also we had like. 28, 29 of these personal essays that we collected. I collected, I guess, because I mm-hmm. was in charge of nonfiction. That was you. That was you. And, um, and then also I found the other nonfiction pieces for, um, for the, the, the issue. And I really wanted to make the nonfiction be about inspiring and empowering women to read and write science fiction because I just think, you know... I love science fiction. It's the bulk of what I write. And I just want everybody to feel inspired by it and as welcome within it as I want to be welcome. And so uh, we had a great crew of people jump in to help, people who had volunteered and then people um, we reached out to. I, I really love um, it was it's in the ebook and in the print edition, there's this essay um, by Nisi Shaw, mm-hmm. which is about how to help women writers. And it's just chock full of resources and encouragement and support. And it's exactly what I wish someone had handed me when I was 19 and thinking, 
oh, I'm never going to be a great writer. I can't write. I'm never going to be either Madeline Langle or F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> and um, I just wish I could have, like, you know, sent that book to myself and said, read this, read this essay by Nisi mm -hmm. Shaw. And, uh, and so the nonfiction, I, um, I think it's really fun and really helpful. There's a great reading list that um, Stina Light put together, which is part kind of like a personal essay about how science fiction um, helped her as a young person and her recommendations as well as some recommendations of great feminist work. The idea of the essay is kind of like, when you get done reading all these, you will be a feminist SF fan too. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, there's just so much really positive energy in the nonfiction. I'm happy that I got to put it together. Uh, you know, actually, the personal essays reminded me that that was another way in which Christy was really instrumental in, in uh, determining what the overall product of this uh, issue turned out to be, uh, because uh, initially we were just going to have the personal essays on the Kickstarter, and that was just, that was going to be where they were used, and that was it. Um, but then she came up with the idea to include the essays in the actual issue itself, and she was pretty adamant about it. And at first I was resistant, because I was like, I was thinking about uh, production costs and everything, like, oh, well, we're producing this in print, that's going to make it so much bigger, it's going to be really hard to fit everything in there and I was thinking about all these things and now in retrospect I'm like I'm so glad she pushed so hard for that because absolutely those needed to be in there um and it makes it a completely different thing having all of that in there um and yeah. and like Wendy was saying it's like this is the sort of thing you could just hand to somebody and be like okay now that you're done with that now now you understand what feminism and science fiction is you know um and without those it would it wouldn't nearly have the same effect so and another thing about the personal essays is that we started out and and those were just donations like those mm -hmm. were women in the field just saying yes i will give you this to help this kickstarter because it's yeah. such a great cause I, I think it just reflects like the incredible generosity of spirit that so many women in this genre have yeah yeah that was um that that's exactly what i wanted to say because oh. when we when we first put out just the teaser this is back in september um, John created an email address that was just, I want to destroy SF at lightspeed.com. <laughs> and this little, like, I don't know what it was, like five sentence teaser or something saying, you know, women destroy science fiction coming in, in summer. And, you know, if you want information, we had 200 emails in 24 hours. And the, those blog posts came from, in, well, the vast majority of them, uh, came from those people who emailed saying, I want to help. How can I help? Can I blog? I will blog. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, I mean, these were people who just out of nowhere said, yes, anything I can do to make this happen, I will. And um, Robin Lupo, who is uh, another assistant editor at Lightspeed and also was our flash fiction editor, we opened flash fiction for the first time ever. And uh, Robin found 15 amazing stories, great examples of extremely short form science fiction. Um, but she initially called uh, mm -hmm. you know, th she went through that whole, <laughs> all of the email looking for what people had said. Did they want information? Did they want to blog? Did they want to, you know, and she sorted all of that out. And, and from there, um, Wendy was able to, um, you know, wrangle. Oh my gosh, the wrangling Wendy did. You would not believe. <laughs> I, I keep telling people, you know, most of the heavy lifting, the vast majority of the heavy lifting on this thing, Wendy did. Um, and I can't thank you enough. I, I just, it wouldn't have, wow would not have come together the way it did without you. So 
Thank you, Chris. For, for, for what it's worth, uh, uh, you know, as, as they said, uh, the or I think as Wendy said, the uh, the personal essays were donated to us, which is awesome. But I, I do feel compelled to mention that since we did overfund so much, we did actually pay them for them. After, oh, the, hell yes, after we the did. That's so, uh, yes. So yes. we weren't we weren't cheap. We didn't like uh, we <laughs> no, didn't no. like hoard all the money. Um, <laughs> we did pay them after the fact. Uh, no. uh, but it was it was lovely to, to see that sort of support from people like who, you know, they they donated this work and supported the cause. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then and then we brought on um, Galen Dara, who, mm. who's been a, a longtime um, illustrator at Lightspeed and, you know, who won the um, Fan Artist Award uh, last year at the Hugos and is up for the Professional Artist Award this year. Yay, Galen. Um, and we brought her on as art director and she's like, well, so we're going to illustrate more stories, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you want you want more illustrators, right? I'm like, yeah, I think I think we could do that. So, um, yeah. So she brought us uh, three or four new illustrators mm-hmm. um yeah we ended up with eight illustrations yeah eight illustrations um the, the kickstarter backers all got this beautiful color edition of of the issue um with the artist galleries all in full color and it's uh, so pretty um i feel like we need to talk about the podcast though and this mm-hmm. is really kind of your domain john because um you and dave are the podcast people mm-hmm. here um but what, what i i did do is i i made him uh <laughs> uh, I made him replace his his podcast team for the month. Uh, we got Gabrielle Decure and uh, Mer Lafferty, who I've been a fan of for years, um, to do our podcasts. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about that, sure. John. Yeah, you know, so so um, while she says that uh, she forced me to replace the podcast team, it's true in a sense. But the thing is, is um, <laughs> I'm, I mean, not I mean, you know. It, what she said made sense. Obviously, yes, we should have women um, controlling it if possible. And, and so uh, I, I say it's true in a sense because uh, our podcasts are produced by Skyboat Media, which is uh, run by Stefan Rudnicki, but also with Gabrielle DeCure. They're, they're partners. And so, um, you know. Grammy Award winning. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, Stefan is who I usually deal with. But, I mean, Gabrielle narrates a lot of the stories. And, you know, I don't know what she does behind the scenes usually. But so in this case, it was a, it was a nice, easy handoff because we could just say, oh, OK, well, Stefan, you just, you know, go away for the month and let Gabrielle hmm. take take the reins. Because, you know, she already knows how to do it anyway. She sees him do it every month. So, um so she took over and, uh, you know, she and she was actually like Christy. Gabrielle was kept pushing for more and more and more. Uh, okay. She was super excited about this. Oh, um, but uh, and so one um, one interesting thing was uh, the idea of having the issue as all women uh, kind of came into a bit of conflict with the podcast, because while you can have the producer as a woman, you can have our guest host as a woman, you know, in this case, Mer Lafferty. Um, but you can't actually have all of the narrators be women. Uh, because it depends on whether or not the protagonist of the story, the narrator of the story, is a male or a female. Right, and that um, was not our requirement. We did not require right. the protagonist be female, just the author. So right. Yeah. So so uh, some men did get involved in the project in that way because uh, you know Stefan narrated at least one story, and then you know some other men narrated stories. But depending on uh, what the gender of the um, of the narrator uh, or the protagonist of the story is, and so be true to the vision of the yeah. woman author. Right, and actually, I have to say. Um, not, not that I'm just want to give props to the male narrators that work on this, but, <laughs> but amazing though. Yeah. But Stefan, like he knocked it out of the park reading this <laughs> Tiptree story. Like you got to listen to this because it's like, I mean, that's a bizarre story and it's so, <laughs> it's a little weird. It's like, oh my God, that would have, that must have been so <laughs> difficult to narrate. And he just did such an amazing job. Like you just literally, you just have to go listen to it. It's on the website for free. You can listen to it right now. You know, you can get it from iTunes, all that kind of stuff. But man, he did a great, fantastic job. 
Okay, cool. And so, John, I mean, if people, um, you know, don't typically read Lightspeed and they're kind of like, oh, this sounds interesting. I'd like to check out this special issue. I'd like to check out the podcast. How do they go about finding all this stuff? Um, if you just go to lightspeedmagazine.com slash WDSF, that'll take you to the page that uh, has all the information about it. It describes the issue. It, it uh, has links to where you can see the table of contents, that kind of stuff. Um, it also presents all the ways in which you can order it. So right now you can get the trade paperback from CreateSpace, um, you know, via Amazon. Um, you can get that. It's for $15.99. Um, and like Christy said, it's like 500 pages. So it's like a gigantic, it's like a big ass anthology, basically. Um, but uh, so so it's available that way. Or if you're more uh, uh, cost conscious and, and or else you just like ebooks, actually, the whole ebook, the whole issue is available for only three ninety nine, which is just the price of a regular issue of Lightspeed. This um, is one hundred and eighty thousand words. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's like two and a half times the size of a regular issue of Lightspeed. Um, and, and it includes much more fiction. So like, typically an issue of Lightspeed has a, uh, uh, a lot of those words are used up by nonfiction and other things. And so um, but the you know, compare if you're just comparing fiction, this issue has so much fiction in it, you can't even believe it. Um, but so, like I said, it's only three ninety nine, and um, and you can get that from our website or from Amazon or all 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 sorts of places. But yeah, if you just go to lightspeedmagazine.com/slash/wdsf, um, it has all the info there for you. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And so then, uh, what's next for you guys after this stunning success? <laughs> uh, well, next year uh, we decided we we're going to do queers to destroy science fiction. Um, and that came up because uh, queer writers run into the same sorts of problems that women writers run into a lot. Which is like, you know, people saying, oh, how, why are you, you know, getting all your queer cooties in, into our, into our science fiction? And it, like in the case, like I think I talked about this on a different episode where I, I do an anthology like The End is Nigh and it has like four or five stories that actually have gay characters in them at all. Most of, and most of them, you know, the, the, the fact that they're gay isn't actually relevant. Wait, and um, it's five out of how many? Just, yeah, out of 20, 24, 23, 24. Right, right. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, not like a huge percentage. And yet people fixate on those things and they, and they, have to call it out in reviews because they're like, oh, this throws me out of the story because it's being political. It's like, you're being political by by existing? Um, <laughs> yeah, and and exactly. so, you know, the very fact that things like that are still being said today in 2014, like, you know, kind of makes it obvious. Like, oh, well, yes, this needs, uh, you know, we need to let queers destroy science fiction too because um, destroying it once is not enough. Um, <laughs> we get to spread the love around. And so, um, yeah, so we're doing that next for, for next year's special issue. And you want to talk about who you have involved with that? Uh, sure. Yeah. So Shannon McGuire is going to be the guest editor, um, uh, the overall guest editor. So she's going to select the original fiction and you know sort of shape the overall vision of the magazine. Um, and then Steve Berman, who runs Lathe Press, um, uh, which is a, a, a queer uh, science fiction fantasy press, uh, he's going to be the reprint editor. Um, and that's all who we, that's all we have lined up so far. But um, stay tuned to Lightspeed uh, for more information. And uh, we're gonna we're planning another crowdfunding campaign for to launch that one. Um, and uh, we're not sure quite yet when that's going to run, but uh, it'll be you know either later this year or early next year. And and we'll get to that after we get Women Destroy Horror and Women Destroy Fantasy oh. out. That's October. Yes, that's so, right. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Because because the campaign did so well, we unlocked a couple of stretch goals, which uh, yielded Women Destroy Fantasy and Women Destroy Horror. And so Women Destroy Fantasy is going to be a special issue of Fantasy Magazine, which we're we're reviving just for this one issue because Fantasy was merged into Lightspeed back in 2012. And then Women Destroy Horror is going to be a special issue of Nightmare. Um, that one's going to be guest edited by Ellen Datlow. Kind of a big deal. Um, kind of, a little bit. And uh, Women Destroy Fantasy is going to be guest edited by Kat Rambo as the original fiction editor and, and guest editor. And then Terry Windling is going to be the reprint editor. So also a big deal. 
All right, cool. So we should probably start wrapping this up. Do you guys just have any final thoughts on women destroy science fiction or the role of women in science fiction going forward? Um, I mean, for my part, I'll, I'll just say like how encouraging it is to see people embrace this idea with such enthusiasm, um, not just like on Twitter and stuff, but like with their checkbooks, you know, or whatever, with their pocket, <laughs> pocketbook, yeah. you know, uh, with their wallet, I should say, um, you know, because it's like, they're buying it like in droves and it's like i'm not just like happy as a publisher because like oh yay the magazine's making money no it's like it's very encouraging because it's like i can see like they're actually they believe in it enough to to plunk down cash for this thing not just to to retweet things you know what i mean so um it's very very encouraging and and i couldn't be happier with how it's turned out and and just to see all the wonderful reviews and to see all these people saying how much it's meant to them to 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 read this and and see these kinds of things in a magazine like lightspeed um it's been really great yeah, if, if you're a reader, thank you. Thank you for being a reader. If you were a writer and you're listening and you submitted something to us and maybe it was the first time you ever did, um, thank you. Thank you for trusting us with your story. And just know that, that it was read and appreciated and we hope that we see you in our submission queue again. Don't stop. Please don't stop. And that, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. Don't stop. <laughs> Uh, Wendy, do you have any any final thoughts? I think I have a lump in my throat. I feel very, <laughs> uh, very touched. It's just so great to be part of WDSF. Wow. Now I have a lump in my throat, too. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, this, is, <laughs> this has been really great. So, uh, so thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, bro. <laughs> And that was our panel. So thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Christy Yant, and Wendy Wagner for appearing as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Diana Gabaldone for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Adam J. Forster in the UK. Also, a special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Leonid Levchenko, crowdfunder number 61, and our newest crowdfunder, Alexander Brady, crowdfunder number 79. I'd also like to thank all of our monthly crowdfunders, including Wes Weathersby, Jason Lind, Laura Dirks, Vlad Levin, and George Tricot. We also have two new monthly crowdfunders, Nick Suffolk, crowdfunder number 32, and Abigail Drake, crowdfunder number 42. So big thanks to all you guys. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.